0: And welcome to the Fontcast, Font PR's occasional foray into the world of podcasting. I'm Brad Nowland, joined as always by Beecher Townsend and Brad Stansfield. Hello, gents. Hello, how are we all? Hello. Great to be here and I'm very well, thank you, Peter. Good to you. Looking forward to another exciting episode again today with another exclusive buried in the second half of the show, so stay tuned. But we had some excellent predictions, some breaking news in the previous episode. Let's have a little recap now. More recently, um, there's been some manoeuvring on the Liberal
1: side and we can exclusively reveal that the Libs have managed to catch a high-profile candidate to be pre-selected Saturday... Who will give the seat a real shake for
0: the libs? Are you suggesting that the libs think they could potentially hook the seat
2: with this person? I think they want to reel it in. Now,
0: uh,
1: Janie Finlay, our friend from across the river in Roseby's last year, is unofficially pre-selected to join the Labor ticket. So there you have it. At Fontcast, breaking Tasmanian political news exclusively first. Make sure you subscribe to the show. And Um, again, I might add. And again. Um, So last episode, Hook, Line and Sinker, was the title of the show. If you picked that up, if our references in the program were too obtuse for you, we're, of course, referring to Nick Diagon, now the Liberals' star candidate for Windermere, the uh, former co-host of that uh, famous Tasmanian
2: lifestyle show. Flinders and Farmer, I think you'll find. Um, roving ambassador for the Royal Flying Doctor mm. Service and former sport reporter cum reader with Southern Cross T V, going back many years when I was a young television mm. journalist. Showing
0: your age there, Beach. So but, um, so, so, hang on. A so, so at Southern Cross you had Cassie O'Connor. Correct. Beach Townsend and Rick
2: and Joe Palmer. And Joe
0: Palmer. What yes. an all-star lineup. There you go. The dream team. <laughs> the dream team. Look at us now. Look <laughs>
2: look at the heights we've got to. It's fantastic. Uh,
1: but yes, um, he'll give that a crack for the Libs, I think. But my view is that seat is still wide open for a high-profile independent, if they can find one. But also, as exclusively confirmed on the Fontcast, it will not be Janie Finlay because she is now officially, unofficially... Pre-selected as one of the Labor candidates for Bass, and um, is now working for um, Ms. White in her office.
2: Well, I see it must now be fact because it's been exclusively revealed in a number of other sources since we exclusively revealed it. So that's good to know that there's lots of exclusives going on about that. Um, you know, there's going to be some interesting developments in the North. I've got to say, in my view, Nick Dygan or Dygs as he's colloquially known, is a strong candidate. Jeff Lyons is well recognised. I think it'll come down to the campaign, but you'd suspect that Nick will sway the day. And obviously Janie's a great scalp. That was a prediction. Mark it down. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yep, thank you. Um, uh, Janie is a very good scalp for the ALP. I suspect that will be a great little win for them and make Bass a very interesting electorate to watch. No doubt Michelle will be looking at that with a wry eye thinking about how she's going to run her campaign. So that'll
0: be an interesting thing for the election. All right. And we'll talk about the state of Tasmanian politics and the next election in particular a little bit later on in the show. But firstly, I just wanted to jump over to WA. There was an election on Saturday and the Western Australian Liberals were handed their proverbial on a plate by Mark McGowan. Brad, what do you make of that and what are the lessons for the Tasmanian Labor Party in particular? Well, what a disaster, what a debacle. A lot of lessons. Uh, I
1: think, look, McGowan was popular. Of course he was popular, you know, um, as is Gartwin, as was Palaszczuk, um, as is Andrews, despite everything. But the Libs did everything wrong to contribute to that result. It was not just his popularity. I mean, they um, changed leader three times in led up to the election, ended up with a, you know, 34-year-old proposing to be the Premier of the state, Uh, first-termer, that poor candidate pre-selection. We all know about that. They had a terrible campaign, including an energy policy which, um, you know, it looked like it came out of Green Party Central. And worst of all, uh, they conceded defeat three weeks out. Now, I'm a big believer in bandwagon theory when it comes to elections. I believe, particularly in Tasmania, people like to vote for winners. No one wants to vote for a loser. And when you've got the Leader of the Opposition saying, I'm a loser, well... Yes, what?
2: Yeah, look, I, I tend to agree with you. I'm having a bit of a trip down memory lane today, reflecting on a number of issues. And uh, this one does remind me of Bob Cheek's uh, failed campaign from many years ago. You'd have to say in politics, it's about a contest. And if there's no contest, well, what can you do but expect the worst to happen? I'm surprised the party elders of the Liberal Party let this happen but there's no doubt some people were arguing that they knew best or it was just a a fight to save your own backside in the process. Regardless, it's an absolute train wreck. Politics is about political parties and robust oppositions and there is now no robust opposition in Western Australia. I've already got a number of colleagues who have been contacted about having to lift their game in terms of any commentary in that state simply because there won't be an opposition there. So
0: there it is. It could snap back pretty quickly, though. We saw an almost similar thing happen in Queensland where Labor were nearly wiped out. There was about seven or eight seats, I think. And within a term, they were roaring back into into government. Um, And, you know, Palaszczuk looks unassailable. Well,
2: you'd have to say, I mean, I agree, you know, there's a fantastic opportunity in Western Australia if you're young and keen and want a career in politics because there's plenty of opportunity there and you would have to say there'll be a natural swing back Mm -hmm. and there'll be an opportunity to come back, regroup and, and reconsider it. And hopefully there will be a good process of renewal. But in the meantime, the glorious socialist utopia, that is Western Australia, will continue Mm. and they might secede, they might do anything for the next election. You never know. Mm.
0: Um, And I think importantly for other jurisdictions, this once again just proves that Ronald Reagan's maxim of uh, always dance with the one that brung you is is well and truly the the right approach. And for mine, the, the lesson for Tasmanian Labor would be start reflecting the community that you're going to ask to vote for you, rather than um, any particular political ideology. That's that's what um, the Western Australian election told me. I
2: think we've had this discussion before, haven't we? But that's no. exactly right. Don't forget your base.
0: Mm, absolutely. So let's move on to Tasmanian politics now. Clearly the dominant event over the last few days has been the Premier's State of the State address. Hang on, wasn't, address. wasn't it a budget? Well, it was a budget without numbers. No. It was... Um, It was an extraordinary uh, document and around the office we've called it the Premier's Pezrak policy (laughs) piñata. Pesrak got out the papier-mâché and they sculpted a nice-looking donkey for the Premier and he hung it it up in a tree outside Parliament. He belted it with the stick and all sorts of policies came falling out. Some good, some indifferent and some incredibly bad. But the, the one thing that really surprised me is there has been no serious questioning about how much all of this will cost. Mm. Some of those policies will be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. This will have a substantial and significant impact on the budget, not just this year but for many, many years to come. And there's not a single dollar figure attached to the document at all. It's, it's oh, remarkable. There
1: was a bit of money outlined for certain piece of land in Hobart.
0: Yeah,
2: glorious and very enlightened decision, that one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, and I see that, you know, land tax has been quietly reformed as well. That will cost potentially hundreds of millions of dollars a year, not that I'm for higher land tax, but um, but that is a huge policy shift that will have massive implications for the budget and very little questioning from mm. Labor or from the media, for that matter, as to how much it will cost. I think the. There were a couple of questions raised and the government simply said, oh, well, we'll we'll cover that in the budget. Well, you know, that's not until August.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine – well, I can imagine what would happen if um, the Labor Party put out a similar document in opposition without any numbers attached to it. Mm. Uh, They would be torn to shreds by the government. Um, Just quickly from my perspective, and I know we'll get into some of the detail, Brad, but as an overall package, I thought it was too much, too risky in an election year and – announcing it all at once, just like a big, you know, you say, pinata being uh, splashed all over the place. You know, there was a lot of good stuff in there. I wouldn't know what it is. It all got lost in the wash and all that
2: gets remembered is the controversial policies. Yeah, look, I'm going to have to agree. Overall, there were some great ideas. There were some fantastic initiatives and I congratulate Peter Gutwin and the team for listening. But there's no narrative that draws this one together. There's nothing that sort of says... There's a consistent theme other than these are a number of issues in the community that I have discussed, I'm concerned about, PISRAC have raised and therefore I'm going to solve or fix with this document. You'd have to say the next step will be the government trying to draw these details together and create a narrative around it but they haven't started with a narrative so they've got a bit of an omelette and they're going to have to try and unscramble it Mm. to make it into perhaps some boiled eggs.
0: And unfortunately they've lost the narrative... And the opposition and the media will now simply pick out all of the controversial policies and focus on them instead and and all of the good stuff that's in there and there is some good stuff in there will get um, will get overlooked. but more broadly I just wanted to draw your attention to the fact that once again we're um, we're going down this avenue of advice and being compelled to follow the advice 100% and uh, and not actually having any capacity to make independent decisions. Is government taking this advice routine to the extreme and is there a problem with that?
1: Uh, Yes and yes. As some people may know, um, you know, I I grew up on on King Island and back then on King Island we had one TV station, ABC, good old ABC back in those days, And they used to broadcast every night this outstanding uh, British, I thought it was a documentary, it turned out to be a piece of fiction, (laughs) Um, a show called Yes Minister and then Yes Prime Minister. And the main, I think he was the main uh, character in that, uh, Sir Humphrey Appleby, um, often had very sage advice which um, I think people should take more seriously and one of those very important pieces of advice is never commission an inquiry unless you know what the outcome is going to be. And clearly the government did not take that on via side board when they commissioned this PESRAC process. Um, outsourcing policy to an unelected group is never a good idea. It always ends badly. Um, and now you've got the government agreeing to 52 policies of varying and um, there's more than 52, some of them have got sub points of varying quality. The only other point I want to make quickly is that, you now there's been this claim made by PESRAC and echoed by the government that they consulted widely the biggest consultation process in the history of Tasmania, you know, 3,500 people, blah-de-blah. I had a quick look through some of the detail of this and, you know, I wouldn't call an opt-in survey monkey, which is overwhelmingly weighted to Hobart, as is clearly outlined in the document, as being a wide consultation. And perhaps that explains some of the... Um, policies that we've got at the end of it.
0: Right, and let's move on to the policy that Labor has picked up, surprise, surprise, which is the shock announcement that the government would um, blow up TAFE and try and recast it in its own image. Beach, I know you've got some strong feelings on this. What do you think?
2: Look, I, as you know, mix in business circles and I speak with business leaders' types, as it do. Must be why I wear a tie. That's why you're the managing director. Managing director, the big guy. And what I would say is you speak to anybody in business, not everybody, but many people in business and they will express great concern with TAFE and great concern with the system. So I think it is fair to say from a business point of view that there is a significant need for reform of TAFE. The other aspect to hold in mind is we have this proliferation that, you know, if you're uh, going to educate your kids well, you must send them to university. Well, there are plenty of kids out there that would probably do better if they went to TAFE. So I suppose I'd make the point that it is clear that TAFE needs to move with the times. And the one thing that's occurred in the Tasmanian education system is there hasn't been a lot of change for a lot of time. So the problem is, when you go to change it, it's highly controversial. I have no doubt that'll be the case. I question the timing, but I certainly believe that it is time for change at TAFE.
0: Mm. Look, I think it's the wrong policy, the wrong process and the wrong outcome. Everything about this has been an absolute debacle. And um, It's only 48 hours old. Well, no, no, but this is – but the point is, they had they had some chats with a few business groups – Fine, that's yep. great, survey monkey, yeah. and a sur- and they sent out a survey monkey, yep. but that is not consultation. You know, they haven't engaged with the experts in the field, their workforce, which I think is an absolute tragedy because these are the people who are going to have to implement the changes. And they haven't actually had a say in the process. Oh, the, come on. This, now, let,
2: let, let's get serious about this. No, Everybody have, knows that TAFE has needed significant reform for many years. That's right? Fine. There's, There's no question about that. That's the fine. But, is but
0: t- don't do it in a one-sided fashion. Okay. You know, you've actually got to consult with the people who know what they're talking about. And here's a radical idea. Instead of the the IR changes that they're proposing and, you know, looking after particular stakeholder groups... Why don't they actually put the kids and the students at the centre of this and actually make it all about them? Because at the moment, they're being completely missed out in all of this and they will be caught in the crossfire as, you know, the staff, the unions, the industry stakeholders and the government all fight about um, what this should look like at the end of the day. They will be the ones who are completely left out and they will be the ones who will suffer.
1: There you go, Brett, now i the great champion of public education. <laughs> yes. um, all I will say is this year... Will be an election year, um, you know. Allegedly, it may have been early. We'll come to that later on. But it will be an election year, no matter what. This is the last state of the state before the election. You do not, in the fourth year, no matter what your political position, announce something politically risky like this. Um, to continue the yes minister analogy, it is a very courageous decision. Um, you know, line that up with the um, the green lighting of the. Um, sale of momentum, or as is being said, and will be said in a scare campaign, the, the start of the privatisation of the hydro, and um, I think the Labor Party must have been pinching
0: themselves that mm. this was actually happening when they uh, heard the Premier say this the and, other day. And here's a bit of a prediction for you as well, Brad. I think this will be the high watermark of where this policy goes. I think from here on in, until mm. the election, it will be crab-walked back gradually.
2: Yep. And well, painfully. Yeah, you know, and when I talk about my little trip down memory lane, I've got to say, you know, this has got all the hallmarks of directions and for those that aren't familiar with it, you know, at the tail end of the Rundle government, they came up with a whole series of significant reforms for Tasmania, most of which were good ideas, sound thoughts, but at the tail end of political process, is not the time to start announcing radical reform.
0: And there was an early election as a consequence of the direction statement. Before we get to that, radical reform. feature, local
2: government reform is on the agenda. Yes, so I should be happy, but I'm not. <laughs> I've got to say this is a complete waste of time. Local government, as we know, is 35% inefficient.
1: As you always tell us.
2: Yep. But they are not going to vote themselves out of a job. <laughs> and we're going to end up with a series of claptrap articles about the benefits of resource sharing across local government. The bottom line is local government reform is about making the back office more efficient so you can deliver more services like roads and footpaths, poo and parks. You could even get you could still keep your representation through a ward system. Just uh, do something about your back office, but these people are not going to vote themselves out of a job. This is not going to occur. This is a complete waste of
1: time. quite sure what you meant by poo and parks. I assume you meant dog poo. Um, there's a lot of that in parks. but um, Well, oh, I, think, I, w-
2: I think if you talk to local government, they still seem to own and run TAS Water, so it's still ah, about poo and okay, all right. Yes.
1: Um, all I will say is um, the fact that this um, uh, new policy, supreme policy, policymaking body that above the cabinet called the PESRAC, thought that they could get the parliament to sit around and hold hands and sing kumbaya while we all agree how to forcibly merge local government and, and as you say, vote themselves out, is completely out of touch with reality and does just show what happens when you outsource your policy to unelected people. And I must say the fact that the government didn't just chuck that idea straight out the door and actually agree to it is even more concerning.
2: Well, it does show a lack of thought and a lack of strategy. And I think that's the one thing that's remarkable about this entire process, right, is the narrative, the one theme that draws it all together seems to be missing. And that's, that's, that's really the biggest issue at the heart of this. Mm. Plenty of individual ideas that are great on their own, but what does it do, what does it say and where does it take the state? I think it's going to create arguments, it's going to create confusion and it's going to distract the government from mm-hmm. getting its message across. You know, there's no doubt. You look at Western Australia, look at other states. Clearly, clearly, there is a sense that if you're the incumbent incumbent government, you've got a you know electorally a strong place to be. But I still don't think that's smart.
0: And it could come back to bite them as well. So let's move on to the election. There was an interview a day or two after the state of the state on ABC and the Premier made it pretty clear that he's not just open to but actively considering an early election. My prediction... Hang on, is this an exclusive? Well, yeah, an exclusive prediction. <laughs> exclusive
2: prediction. Does that yeah. mean when other people report it, it's just an exclusive?
0: That's or... right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Budget Day is set down for August the 26th. Yep. The prevailing thought is that as soon as the budget is brought down, the Premier will then call the election. Given that there's a requirement for a six-week campaign, that would make election day either the 2nd or the 9th of October.
1: There you have it. exclusive revealed first by Brad Nowland on the frontcast yep. yes. um,
0: I know you've got some other thoughts about that,
1: but just quickly I, what I would say is um, I think an early election is a very, very bad idea. Um, I think you always lose skin when you go... Early and um, it would not be sensible to do so. This thought of having a budget and then running straight to the polls. Well, the last bloke to try that was Malcolm Turnbull, and he lost, nearly lost government. I would, so, if I was uh, still, um, you know, a person of influence within the government, I would be suggesting you you should absolutely see it out until March next year.
0: Absolutely, and and there's still a lot of work for the government to do. If you look at their position. You know, they're riding high in the polls. There's no doubt about that. And you would have to say that they are in with a very good chance of um, of retaining government. But if you go around the electorates, it's a very different story. So you start off in, say, Braddon. You've got Jeremy Rockliffe. He'll pull a lot of votes because he's very popular up there and has been for a very long time. Roger yench not so much. Felix Ellis, probably not either. Um, and I can't really see who their star candidate is, that's going to get them back in the game, maybe Adam Brooks potentially. If you go to Bass, they'll be they'll be fine. They've got the Premier there. There'll be a halo effect. Um, Michael Ferguson still has very strong support in his community. Sarah Courtney's done a good job and, and should easily get back in. And I think they're in Bass, it has been reported elsewhere. We give credit to other sources that report
1: it. I think it was in the Examiner that the, the view is that she will save the furniture for Labor in Bass and make sure Libs don't get four. Michelle O'Byrne? No, no, and Janie, Janie Finlay. Janie, yeah, Janie would be the one
0: that. Yeah, you well, know, you can see second seat. Yeah. You can easily see yeah. Labor getting two seats there. Jennifer Houston hasn't really bothered the scorers too much, but Janie uh, Finlay yeah. will will definitely give it a red hot go. Yeah. If you look at lines, where well, you've got Mark Shorten and Guy Barnett basically fighting over the same votes in that northern chunk of the electorate, Tucker on the east coast, he'll go okay. He'll get you know some support up there, but. The Libs are really lacking strong candidates in the southern part of Lyons. Is this where
2: Mayor Ben Shaw, uh, post uh, co election, enters the
0: room? That wouldn't be the the worst outcome um, if he doesn't defeat Craig Farrell. The other thing to really focus their minds would be the fact that Sorrell has grown exponentially since the last election. Basically, uh, since 2018, has exploded in terms of population. There'll be enough votes there to actually driver quota, I think. will be wow. around yeah. about 10,000. Well, the 000. Libs'
1: biggest um, vote getter in Southern Lions last election was Jane Howlett, but she's obviously out of the picture now.
0: Yeah, so they're going to... The Libs will need a very strong candidate in that Sorrell area or otherwise White will really hoover up some votes there and do very well. Clark, you know, a bit of a raffle. What does Madeleine Ogilvie do? What happens with Christy Johnson? You would have to think Elise Archer will obviously... Um, Get back in. At the I top will. Of
1: the um, ticket. I will confidently predict that Christy Johnson will win a seat.
0: There you go. So another another prediction. Mm. Yeah, you'd think that maybe Simon, someone like Simon Barakas, if he puts his hand up, would be a strong contender for the libs. And then you go to Franklin, and you know you've got you've got Jackie Petrusma, not a, a, a huge vote getter, and you've got Nick Street again, not a huge vote getter. Where are they going to get the votes in Franklin? I, th- I think they'll fall over the line with two quotas quite easily, well, comfortably, potentially. But it's no sure thing. And if Labor finds some good candidates down south and on the eastern shore...
1: So I think the point you're making is that Hare Clark makes this a lot more complicated than, you know, just you know, cruising through an election like they did in WA.
0: That's right. Hare Clark makes it a lot closer than yeah. what the polls would would suggest.
2: Yeah, and if you were smart about your strategy, you'd go, well, we might not be able to win... Perhaps you don't concede that publicly but you might be able to run a bit of a campaign in a couple of electorates that might just put the government in minority or put the government on the back foot and you'd have to say Franklin and Clark would be the place you'd do it. Mm. Probably Franklin is.
0: So uh, when
1: was the last time we had an early election in TAS historian
0: Brad Nowland? Well, you'd have to think it would be 98. So Um, that government ran from 96 to 98 and there... What happened to that government? Well, as Beecher alluded to, there's some... Interesting they parallels. <laughs> yeah. They got flogged. Yeah, and mm. that was
2: directions time and there mm. was a campaign around privatising the hydro and there was all these radical reforms. <laughs> and local government, government. government reform. Yeah, yeah it's... Deja <laughs> vu all over again. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of a history... So, you know, beach early election, yourself? your view? Uh, look, I'm not as convinced as you both are that an early election is such a suicidal sort of move. I think the government is riding high. I think there is a lot of community support out there for them... There is a point at which we're going to have a hangover from this COVID-19 party in the sense of financial expenditure. Uh, There's got to be a reckoning from a budgetary point of view. There's going to be significant deficits. I wonder when that becomes apparent and when that starts driving the uh, uh, business confidence in the community. If that starts driving business confidence down, again, we're sort of, again, reminiscent of 98 then the government's really going to struggle. So I certainly understand that. But I suppose the other point I'd make about the Premier and his musing about the election date is the thing about Peter Gutwin that I've observed in my time with him is he's unerringly honest, which is a fantastic quality, and he speaks out loud about what he's thinking about. Mm. And so I think what we might be seeing is the musings of Peter Gutwin... And whereas others might think to themselves, perhaps I shouldn't muse publicly about the next election date, Peter is the kind of guy who will have quite a frank and open mic and honest discussion with people. And so what we might simply be seeing is Peter musing about the fact that perhaps we should have an early election.
0: So clear your diaries. What was the date again, Brad? Uh, October the 9th, I think, is the, is the one that I've got circled. On my mm, calendar, all right after the footy finals. Absolutely, assuming COVID doesn't move
1: them. Right, mm, yeah.
0: All right, I think that's where we're going to have to leave it for this episode of the Fontcast. Fontcast is produced by Icon Media, directed by Sam Icon, with engineering from Brendan Lenahan. And uh, before we go, just thank you very much to Beecher and Brad for your time again. Thank you. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Fontcast.